Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward, you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. Today, we want to go down a fun road and talk about something that's been interesting to me as you'll as you'll come to hear over the past few years and that is the relationship between ancient paganism and Christianity and this will then set us up for a larger discussion about modern Christianity's relationship to non-Christian culture not necessarily religions but culture like what we're living in in the West. And so in essence, the question we're exploring is one that's been asked for centuries. And it's epitomized in Tertullian's, the ancient church father from who was writing about the 200s, his famous question that he asks, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? He's asking what's the relationship between the Greek philosophers of Athens, Plato, Socrates, and the like, and then Jerusalem, the religion of God and the Messiah, Jesus. So, I, to jump into this, I want to ask you a question, Father Wesley. Have you ever heard someone claim that Christianity has paganism embedded within it, particularly around two particular holidays? Oh, yes. I, all, all the time. In fact, just yesterday, I was dialoguing with a uh, person who claims to be a messianic Christian, um, so tries to follow the laws of the Torah and, and things like that, uh, and and made the he made the point to me that, that Easter is based on pagan religion, um, and that's why we have the bunny and the eggs, because it's all these pagan uh, fertility rituals. Uh, so that, and then of course, Easter gets some, a bad rep as well. Um, and so, so all the time you hear that as a means of discrediting that's what they'll say is that because these are pagan holidays it shows that christianity couldn't possibly really be true or that we need to return to a more quote-unquote biblical form of christianity that does away with the pagan influence like a chick track might make that argument right so that's the basic premise that is gonna that, that's springboarding us into this conversation is that christianity objectively has a has accrued these various pagan uh, characteristics, or maybe characteristics is the right word, they've overtaken some paganism, holidays, themes along the way. What do we make of this? I know that I've heard people argue vehemently, no, 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 none of this is pagan. No, 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 none of this is pagan. And other people show, oh, it's absolutely pagan. But I want to hopefully today offer kind of a middle route. It's pagan, and that's a good thing. And so to also kind of set the conversation we're about to have, I want to offer a quote from Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink was a Dutch Reformed theologian, and he's of this school of Dutch Reformed theology that has a grander cosmic Christ vision, sacramental worldview. Everything is summed up in Christ. So kind of different than probably what a lot of Reformed theology we come in contact with in the States, which is, or at least in our area, a Scottish Presbyterian Reform. So here's a quote from Herman Bavink. Christianity does not introduce a single substantial foreign element into the creation. It creates no new cosmos, but rather makes the cosmos new. It restores what was corrupted by sin. So Bavink is setting this platform, this ground for Christianity to restore and to all of culture be reunited in Christ. So let's run with that idea. Let me give a backdrop that uh, a personal 
backdrop as to why this this uh, dialogue between paganism and Christianity first came into my mind. So I came into what I'm going to call classical Christianity. That would be Catholic Christianity expressed in the great traditions of Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, things like this. Uh, I came from classical Christianity from a pretty puritanical background. Formerly worship, when I thought of worship, it really consisted in an intellectual exercise uh, expressed in a sermon set within whitewashed walls, right? You just sit, you receive a sermon, you're done. That was it. But when I started to discover Anglicanism, uh, this tradition of classical Christianity, it really called me to go deeper. It presented worship, as we've discussed in other episodes, as a drama. It's the narrative of salvation performed liturgically, experienced sacramentally. But, and, and here is the key that I realized as I was learning this, is it's not just my narrative, nor is it just the church's narrative. When we celebrate the Eucharist, we tell the world's one true story. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And it's here that Christianity and paganism I think, meet. And why this is fascinating, because as I was coming into classical Christianity, this was taking place right after I graduated college. I discovered the Anglican tradition. I also read a book. And the name of this book was called, uh, is called Pagan Christianity by George Barna and Frank Viola. And in this book, if you, if you all out there are not familiar with these two, George Barna and Frank Viola, they are kind of the spearhead leaders of what you might call the home church movement, a lot of what you just said, Father Wesley, a movement of let's return to basic Christianity. Let's be the church of the first century. And so they write this book of it's exactly the thesis. Christianity today is full of paganism and we need to get rid of it. And so they run with it from liturgy to vestments to holy days to dressing up for church to pews to church buildings. All this is pagan. Let's get rid of it. And so as I'm reading this, I realize, oh, I would have agreed with this, almost all of it. In fact, I was taught a lot of this stuff. Like six months prior before that I picked up that book, I would have held that book and said yes and amen. But by the time I read it, early in my journey into classical Christianity, I, I was starting to question. I knew something was wrong. And what it was is I was realizing that classical Christianity presented this grander vision that, that yes, there is this interplay with paganism because the various paganisms of the ancient and even modern world, that they have one thing in common, that they are telling a story about the meaning of life and humanity. Paganism is nothing more than fallen humanity's attempt to narrate the story. The problem is the story doesn't belong to us. Even still, fallen humanity bears the marks of the narrator in this way that it intuitively knows the plot of the story. And so, as the psalmist says, deep calls unto deep. And so, the, 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 what this brings me to, what I began to realize is that the pagan attempt at crafting the narrative of human history, of, hu of what it means to be human, of the world, of the cosmos, it's ultimately wrong. But it isn't all the way wrong. This is why classical Christianity extended kind of both law and gospel, yes and no, to paganism. It incorporated into the church early on. It baptized, rightly so, those elements of paganism that told the story of humanity rightly, but not without first, I think, reorienting them towards their proper end. Christ, whom Paul says in Colossians 3, is all and in all. And so every Christian 
believes that Christ fulfills the story of Israel found in the Old Testament. He is the Messiah of Israel. The early church, the more I got into classical Christianity, the more I began reading and studying the church fathers, the early church went even further. Christ is both Israel's Messiah and the entire cosmos coming king. Humanity is fulfilled in the entire story of Jesus. And so in this sense is what I'm going to put forward today. Christianity must be pagan if it's going to tell the whole story. And I very much think that you are are onto something there. I mean, as someone who's been classically educated growing up and then a classical educator you know, within Christian contexts, I mean, I very much see this as, as one of the things that we want to bestow to our students. That is an understanding of being able to read the world and see where all cultures stumble into truth in a sense, and then be able to contextualize that truth with the gospel. And the, the thing that I think is really powerful about this and and that is often missed, particularly by the viola and barnas of the world, is that there is a biblical foundation for this way of thinking. In a kind of pious sense, it might be easy to dismiss this and say, well, I just need the Bible. You know, it's an understandable impulse. It's not It's not as though that should, impulse should be demonized, but the way that it's done is often poorly and so I think there are a number of biblical kind of narratives that, that point to exactly what you're saying. So the first one, and I came across this uh, as I was reading Peter Lightheart, who I love. Peter Lightheart is awesome. And he has this book called City of Man. It's a kind of his commentary on all these ancient pagan myths from a Christian perspective. And he begins his introduction in that book with the question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem and, and answering it? And his conclusion is that as Christians, we ought to conduct holy war on paganism. And so we should explore uh, Athens as kind of a, a way of, as, as an act of war, as a scouting, as a sending out and destroying, but then retreating back into Jerusalem. Yeah, it's the idea of plundering. Exactly. Yeah, plundering the Egyptians uh, is, is a phrase commonly used in classical education circles. I love a lot of what Lightheart says in that introduction, but I think that in talking about Athens and Jerusalem and talking about the Christian inhabiting Jerusalem exclusively and only plundering outside, I, I think he does lose a little bit of the nuance here. And so actually one Bible passage that I think fixes his maybe uh, maybe overly biased uh, towards one side of the discussion is Judges 6, verses 25 through 40. And so in this passage, God comes to Gideon and he tells Gideon that he's to go and destroy the idols of the Israelites in his town, which again, that lends some credibility to what Lightheart is saying, that we should be an absolute total holy war. But the interesting thing in the command that's often overlooked, this is, this is starting in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build, verse 26, an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. 
So out of the altars that had been destroyed, Gideon is to reconstruct an altar to God. So the Christian needs to be skilled at both deconstructionism when it comes to paganism, but also the ability to then frame a positive, a positive apologetic. I I don't like that word, but it works here. A positive apologetic for the gospel out of it, just like Gideon does here with his altar. So I, I think that that is one passage that really kind of lends credibility to what you're saying. Yeah. And the other one from the New Testament, the great example is Paul in Acts 17 at the Areopagus, right? He shows up, he sees all of this worship going on, all this conversations, and they have what? They have the altar to the unknown God. And Paul doesn't stand up and say, you dirty idolaters. Oh my gosh, if only you know, he says, you do well because there is an unknown God. He plays with them. And then what does he do? He actually quotes one of their poets. Now we think, oh, well, yeah, he just quotes a poet. Poets are religious figures in ancient Greece that he quotes more or less one of their scriptures and he says it was right. He uses it. And so he's playing with them to bring them to Christ. And how would you conclude that that passage other than saying, Paul's saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of your pagan religion. Whoa. Now, we, we got to explain more because that can sound kind of bizarre. People are going to cut us off right here and say, oh, well, great. Never going to listen to them again. Right. And so, of course, there have to be some boundaries, I guess, in the way that we're talking about this as far as he is the cosmic Christ. He is in all things, but it's easy for paganism to to miss that. In fact, that is what paganism is. Like you said, it's it's when people take control of a story that is not theirs. Um, and so so the gospel is important for us because it, it adds a corrective. It, it, it is a resetting of those broken stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes all those things that are true. It plunders the Egyptians, but it but it, it ultimately is where truth leads. One one last example biblically that I think kind of lends to to what it is that we're talking about is the Genesis 1 creation poem. Uh, I mean, you have this beautiful picture of God building this world and then filling it. It's an ordering out of chaos and it's really beautiful. And there's been a lot of work done by scholars. I'm thinking uh, John Walton in particular, who's been at the forefront of this to prove that the Genesis account can't be read in isolation. Other ancient Near Eastern cultures that we would call pagan had stories that pre-existed the Israelite story, and they often look similar to and feature similar elements within them. And so then the Genesis account comes along later and takes those pieces and deconstructs the story, but then reconstructs something else. So, for example, uh, you know, paganism really appreciates the natural world, probably too far, right? So to the point that the Babylonians are worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. Genesis 1 has a thing or two to say about the sun and the moon and the stars. Not that they're gods, but that God, the one God, the God of the Israelites, is the one who created those things. And if you even read the way that he says, and also the stars. It's like an afterthought. Oh yeah, those things that you worship, yeah, our God created those. Not even that, but in the account of Genesis, go read it, the word sun and moon don't show up. It's the big light and the little light. Mm. The things you worship, 
Oh, Shemesh would be Hebrew for the sun, Shemesh, the God. This is the Canaanite word. Oh, great Shem. Yeah, that's just a big light my God flung into the sky. So it's it's a pagan polemic is yes, what it is. Exactly. And so it does that. It takes those elements of the story, of those stories, and it, it weaves them in a way that shows the superiority of Israel's God in juxtaposition to pagan mythology. Um, and so it's a really beautiful, I think, example of what it is that we're talking about. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So that's kind of a biblical foundation, those three accounts from Judges, from Acts, and then going back to Genesis of showing that the religion of God, as we'll call it, Yahwehism into Christianity, whatever you want to call this thing that we're a part of, is is a full human story. It's, it's not just isolated within this one group of people with this one truth. It engages. And so here are some other examples that I've come up with as I've been thinking over this thesis of the relationship between Christianity and paganism, Christianity and culture over the past uh, five or six years now. So the first one is, well, hold on, before I jump into this, let me give an explanation of, we've been saying paganism a lot. What do, a, what do we mean by paganism? I mean, when we think of ancient paganism, we can think of the, the myths of, of Rome, the myths of Greece. We're really just meaning any religion outside of Christianity, but a big part of ancient paganism as well was its philosophy, was the way it thought, was what it taught. And so then moving into the Middle Ages, paganism takes on a different look of kind of mass, uh, magical, superstitious type stuff. And that's what we think of as modern paganism, an emphasis on nature, probably worshiping nature, like you said, uh, spells, hexes, things like this. So all of this comes under paganism. So jumping into that, I think one of the first places that we can see where the Christian story incorporates paganism is right in the first chapter of, of John's gospel. I find it fascinating that... In, in the 1800s, there was this big movement to really critique Christianity because it says that Christianity was Hellenized, which means it was Greekized. It, it, it overtook Greek thought to a point of, of really, really obscuring ancient Near Eastern Jewish thought. And Jesus becomes something that he was never intended to be. But I don't think the Hellenization of Christianity took place in the fourth and fifth century. The Hellenization of Christianity took place in John chapter one. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos is a specific Greek word that the Apostle John has chosen, and it has meaning in Greek paganism. One thing, too, uh, that gets connected to Logos early is Justin the Martyr talking about Socrates and Aristotle and Plato calling them Christians because they pursue what? The Logos. Right. And so if if St. John, who's a Jew, is very concerned with keeping his, his context Jewish, A, he wouldn't have written in Greek. B, he, he would have chosen the more Hebraic concept, Sophia, or, which is Greek for wisdom, or in Hebrew, chokhmah. And so this is what he would have chosen. But instead, he goes the Greek route. And so a Greek reader of John's gospel would have known what logos meant. It's this guiding principle that unites all of reality and is behind all of reality. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. And so this is... 
he's he's presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of Greek philosophy. So that's one example that I find uh, really fascinating how thought in what we would call secular or pagan thought can really help us shape Christian theology. And we've seen this throughout 2000 years of history. It's okay to use the world's uh, world's way of thinking. That might not be the way to put it, but philosophy. Philosophy helps us. And so you see this in the Middle Ages. You see this going in the Reformation. You see it even today as we're talking about things, that there isn't a epistemology set out in Scripture. We get to use just human capital of the way to think. So another one then uh, that I find this interesting parallel between Christianity or perhaps a fulfillment of Christianity, paganism and Christianity, is sacrament and magic. Oh man, I was told so many times growing up, Catholic Christianity is just a bunch of magic. That sacrament stuff's so magic, uh, and that's a bad thing. It's ritual. It's dead. It's it's in, it's doing enchantments, right? But maybe maybe there's a reason that it's that way. Maybe humanity longs for a magic. And so I can remember this wonderful story. I don't even know where I saw this video. It was an Eastern Orthodox abbot. He lives out West in California or something. And he's telling this story to his audience, or perhaps it's just talking to the video camera about how he's walking in downtown wherever he lives. And he is wearing his big black habit, the big long black robe. And as he's walking down, he calls it the boardwalk, the, the wherever he is, he passes a 10-year-old boy. And the boy kind of stops and looks at this man who's in this big black robe and he's orthodox, so obviously he has a very nice beard. And the 10-year-old boy looks at him and kind of looks up and down, scans him, and then he proclaims his assessment. Hmm, a wizard. And he walks on and I, and, and the Orthodox priest telling the story says, and you know what? He's right. I am a wizard. I, as a priest, as a monk, I am what wizard was pointing towards all along. And so there's this sense in which the mythical world, the magical world, the fantasy world finds this parallel or a fulfillment in Christianity. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, where he very much bridges that gap because who is one of the prominent figures in the book? Merlin. Merlin. Right. So looking at the sacraments, then you've got, we'll start with baptism. Uh, Herman Melville, the writer of Moby Dick and and. What's the one book you like? Billy Bud Sailor. Billy Bud Sailor. There it is. He, he writes these books. He, in his opening chapter of Moby Dick, he has this kind of long paragraph about water and then just kind of going on waxing eloquently about the beauty of water. And he says this one thing, water is meditative. And it really struck me that, yeah, every culture has kind of clung on to water as being special and unique. Of course, we have to drink it to stay alive. But I was able even to witness this firsthand of how culture has always had this obsession with water. I visited Rome in 2017, and there's a church there in, in the city of Rome called St. Clement. And it was built in the 1400s. And when you visit, it looks like all other all the other medieval parishes in the city. But the magic lies beneath the floor, pun intended. If you look, if you get to tour the basement, which you should, it's not that expensive, you'll discover that St. Clement is built on top of the original St. Clement, which is a fourth century church, much of which still exists. That church, though, is not the original structure. It was built on top of a pagan temple. 
that was built on top of an ancient stream. And so the worship in that pagan temple centered around the mystical power of this ancient stream of this water. And the first church built its baptistry in that stream. And so to this day, they draw up the water from that stream when they baptize. And so the pagans, they're right. These waters have mystical powers, but they were wrong as well. For all the water and its mystical powers has to be connected to the word. And then it becomes the washing of regeneration. I've thought a lot about why water figures so prominently across across all cultures functionally. I mean, they most cultures have some sort of flood myth, but they also um, value rain and, and irrigation because water is both life-giving and also destructive. Um, and I think that's why it's it's so meditative for people because it has such power. Um, and, and then sacramentally, that comes to bear in the way that baptism is both a death and a, a new birth. Thinking of Martin Luther's quote in, um, in Karl Barth's commentary on Romans uh, 6, which is, you know, come thus to thy baptism and let grace throttle you and be drowned in the waters. Um, but in that, we also are receiving a new life. Right. Um, and, and so, so they're both present. Right. And so as Christians, we should look at this pagan impulse to venerate water and say, thou art not far from the kingdom. So that's baptism. Let's talk about the Eucharist. There's, I think there's, let's just go with two ways that I think paganism, Eucharist, these things interplay. The first is, you know, Israel was an odd nation in the Old Testament when you compare it with her pagan neighbors. Not least of all was, um, maybe perhaps most of all, was her weird dietary restrictions that God gave her. And one of those dietary restrictions was concerning blood. You see, pagans loved blood and their worship often included drinking it, uh, these blood rituals. So most often it was animal blood. Sometimes, uh, well, sometimes it was human blood. Something about blood communicated and contained the life force of the creature. And so to consume it meant to take it or him or her into oneself. It, its blood would then pulsate through your veins. Something... Uh, this was this was just the mystical power of blood in the pagan world, and, and like we said, sometimes in the in the more remote parts of the world, pagans would go so far as to devour their slain enemies. I've heard about this human enemies uh, be, as a means of of laying hold to their power and their strength. Right? I, I'm growing more powerful by eating you. So surely, ritualized cannibalism is perhaps the most appalling form of worship humans have ever come up with. Yet even today, in more occultic branches of culture, or not so occultic, there seems to be an obsession, a growing obsession with drinking blood and and eating human flesh. Vampires and zombies are all the rave. We, it seems that we have a deep hunger and thirst that only human flesh and blood can satisfy. And it also seems that Jesus understood this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And so I think there's this incredible uh, point where Christianity can look at even the bizarre parts of pagan culture and say, okay, we'll go with you. You are you have a desire and an impulse. And so that's one part of the Eucharist. What's uh, a second part would be, ne- you know, next to drinking blood and eating flesh, human sacrifice 
was the most abhorrent pagan act, not only in Israel's eyes, but in, in all the New Testament, you know, in New Testament and, and throughout history. Now we just, a human sacrifice is, is abhorrent, especially the sacrifice of one's own child. I mean, God all the time in the Old Testament laws, you shall not pass your child through the fire. This is, that would be a sacrifice to a pagan deity called Molech who required, uh, child sacrifice. So sacrifice, though, was necessary. Sacrifice is one of the most basic elements of human religion. If you take any course or study, read a book about the anthropology of religion, boom, sacrifice. It's the most basic. And so something had to die to make the gods happy. And the more precious the gift, like a human or your own child, the more placated the gods would be. All worship, Therefore, in the pagan world, centers around the altar, around sacrifice. It was the uh, the sine qua non, the without which there's nothing of religion. And again, I think Jesus might speak to that impulse and say, thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. And so I, I'm, it reminds me of one of my favorite hymns of all times. And it's uh, Alleluia, sing to Jesus in the final stanza, Alleluia, King eternal, thee the Lord of lords we own. Alleluia, born of Mary, earth thy footstool, heaven thy throne. Thou within the veil hast entered, robed in flesh, our great high priest. And here's the line that gives me cold chills every time. Thou on earth, both priest and victim in the Eucharistic feast. He is both the priest who offers, but he is that which is offered to the Father, that our sins might be forgiven. He's the victim. The Eucharist, though not a new sacrifice or a new killing of Christ, it is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and it is the sacrifice where we represent the the broken body and blood of Christ in that moment. For our salvation. T.S. Eliot talks about this in uh, in the four quartets as well. I, I'm going to butcher the reference, and if I try and specifically quote it, I'll butcher that too. But but he talks about I think it's Little Giddings in, in this chapel, kind of all time is present, and that's true in the Eucharist. This one act at this one point in time, continuing the scandal of particularity, is somehow then extended and stretches from its singular point on the time line into all points on the timeline. And so we are, it, it flows out from itself. It, it gives life uh, to all time, um, which is just such a cool phenomenon. <laughs> right. So it's this, well, well, we'll do an episode one day on Eucharist and sacrifice. The point I'm trying to make now is that having sacrificial overtones in the Eucharist is, is actually a way to incorporate human story. The, the desire for sacrifice. And our prayer book has it. Receive this, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Our reasonable sacrifice is the way the 28 puts it. So, or the, the, the historic prayer book. And so another place I think that the sacrament, sacramental worldview intersects with this is in the topic of absolution. You know, magic is best known for its spells and its incantations. Evil words spoken by the right person can place a hex or a curse over them and whatnot. And pagans Pagans understood the power of the spoken word and its ability to create life and death. And so after the penitent makes his confession to the priest, by the authority and power given to me as a minister in Christ's holy church, I absolve thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's from the visitation, right for the visitation to the sick in the 1662 prayer book. The priest pronounces an absolution through his words. 
he speaks life. And so I think such a liturgy, it's nothing more than taking Jesus's command in John 20, 23, you know, at face value, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whoso and whosoever sins ye retain, uh, they are retained. And so this, there's a magic, a sacramental moment going on in that absolution. And so maybe that boy was right. Wizards are indeed real and their craft is powerful indeed. So that's sacrament, magic, paganism. Another place I think that another example of this intersection is saints and, and then a pantheon within paganism. So heaven was really crowded in pagan theology. However, the pagan gods, they were often all too human. Sometimes they were even worse than humans. They were full of earthly passions and flaws and failures. Even still, I think that they point towards a deeper yearning among mankind, these echoes of Eden, as it's called, in mankind. We all have this deep within us of, of true faith, of true calling. And it's our desire to become like God, to become God. We tried that once on our terms, and it it ended poorly. Genesis 3, we tried to become God, and it would take God becoming man for us to finally, as St. Peter puts it, participate in the divine nature. Or as St. Athanasius puts it, and on the incarnation, God became man that man might become God, meaning this union with God, theosis. And so one of the most important pagan temples in ancient Rome was the Pantheon. It's kind of in the heart of Rome. And as the name suggests, it's this house of worship for all the gods of the Roman uh, religion. And as the ancient pagans would walk through these giant carved front doors into this temple, they would have seen a massive statue of Zeus at the back wall. And it's a big round building. And all around this round building, there are these four foot by two foot niches, just little divots in the wall. And they they would have housed statues of other lesser gods. So you could have gone here and venerated all the gods. Today, 2000 years later, it's a church and it's saints from the past 2,000 years now fill those niches. And what's up front? A giant crucifix. And that to me is the beautiful picture of heaven is still crowded. As the Psalm says, ye are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. So that's a good segue then into maybe talking about uh, one particular saint, the Theotokos, the mother of God, there's always been this impulse within paganism to somehow venerate uh, the feminine. Even today, modern paganism, neo-paganism like Wiccan, this is a made-up religion. It doesn't really, meaning it doesn't, or I guess all religion, all false religions ultimately made up, but it's modernly made up. It doesn't have ancient roots, but it has a, pa- a goddess who's equal with a god. Generally in paganism, the goddess was lesser, but it was still an important part. And so when you then get into Christianity, Mary takes on this role of you venerate the feminine within Mary. Yeah, it's interesting because you you do hear a lot about how the church doesn't value women or that it's patriarchal. Um, And and certainly an argument could be made in some places that 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 has been the case. But a proper Mariology is necessary to combat that. And and I think is in keeping both as well with the kind of scriptural typology. So not only is Mary kind of the culmination of the pagan, she's the culmination of the Old Testament as well. The Ark of the Covenant, which carried God's presence among the people, is very much a type of Mary who 
carries the incarnate God in her womb. Which Revelation 12 connects for us. Exactly. Right. And she's also then a type of the burning bush. Yes. That she has the presence of God within her, but she isn't consumed. Exactly. So, yeah. I, and so, of course, we, Mary's not a goddess in the sense of like a divine being from all eternity. It's not what we're saying. She's just the queen of heaven. Just the queen of heaven. And But she is this, this premier saint because she gave birth to God, Jesus, right? And that's an, that's an orthodox statement, by the way. Like this is, a, this is a test of orthodoxy, I would say. If you're uncomfortable saying that Mary is the mother of God, then the, the ecumenical councils would say, you need to, you need to test your orthodoxy. A little bit because if she, because it's a statement ultimately about Jesus, right? That's a rabbit trail we can go down later. The point I'm trying to say is there's this human impulse to venerate the feminine in paganism, and it can be tempered, I think, with a, a Marian devotion. So uh, another place for this crossover where Christianity fulfills paganism is is with sacred places. So I was taught a lot growing up that you know there's nothing special about the church building. The church is the people. Church is the people. But you know pagans understood that certain places were more special than others. For example, the ancient Druids in the Celtic lands, like Ireland, they would speak of thin places. These were spots in nature, perhaps it's a river or a large oak tree or a unique rock formation where the community agreed that fairies and nymphs and, you know, mystical creatures and all things related to the mystical world really found a special uh, location. Perhaps there was a crossover, a thin place between this world and the next. And so, the example given just a few minutes ago about the pagan shrine built over the stream of water in Rome, that's, that's a great example of how the church actually incorporated this notion of sacred space into her faith of saying, yes, some spaces are more unique. It's wherever a church is built. But I love this story as well. Uh, St. Boniface, 8th century, he traveled from his native England, Woot Woot, to Germany in order to convert the German pagans. And I love what he did. He found there this tree of worship. It's um, It was called Donor's Oak. And the locals claimed that Jupiter himself visited this tree. And so they paid a lot of attention to it. They really loved this tree. But one night, a great windstorm came through the land and the massive tree was uprooted. And early the next morning, this is great. Here's mission work for you. Here's how to be cultural, how how to engage your people. Early the next morning, the town people woke up to find St. Boniface chopping their mythical tree into pieces. And when he didn't die, the town folks converted to Christianity. And this is great. The wood from the tree was used by Boniface and the town to construct a church with a large wooden cross. And he told them, this tree, this is where God now visits you. It's literally a recapitulation of the Judges 6 story. Yeah, It is. But it's just this beautiful connection that he plays on this idea that they want God to visit them at a tree. Mm -hmm. And so he builds a cross and says, that's where God visits you. And even that impulse, like the fact that it's a tree out of all things. I mean, biblically, there's so much. So much. I mean, and so you've, Christianity is incorporating this stuff. It's seeing itself as the fulfillment of human story, not just this one lone nation story, but that in this one lone nation, Israel, their story is the story, a recapitulation of all human history. And so, okay, one final example, we've got to move on, I think, is this notion of love and marriage. And so think fairy tale. Every culture celebrates love and romance and marriage. Today, our books... 
music and movies, they retell the same story over and over and over again of one man finding his one true love. And, and people are longing for this idea of true love, true love, romance, true love. I mean, how many sappy 18-year-old boys do you know that just are like, oh, I'm never going to get married? Or, you know, 16-year-old girls, oh, I just want to find someone. It's like, you can't even drive, okay? It's going to be okay. But I think nothing captures this sentiment better, right, than those classic fairy tales. Just think the Disney movies that we loved as kids. Every boy wants to be Prince Charming, and every little girl wants to be the princess swept off of her feet by the valiant prince. What's interesting is I think that that impulse is something that the book of Revelation picks up on. Listen to this. This is the end of Revelation chapter 19. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and all ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the God, Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made him herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And so as one commentator on this passage said, I loved it, it's beautiful. If this sounds like the perfect ending to a Prince Charming story, that's because it is. It's the summation and completion of all love stories. And so I think to say it another way, all stories of heroic love that are found in the wider world, paganism, have, have been nothing more than the mere human attempt to articulate and participate in true love, Christ and his bride. Can I add one more to your uh, to your stockpile of parallels yeah, between please. paganism and Christianity? So a few years ago, I was teaching through the Odyssey uh, with my uh, homeschool seniors, and there's a feature in this story that comes up a number of times. Once Odysseus finally makes it back to his home, and he goes around and he tells all of the people who knew him. They'll recognize him. You know, they'll see the scar on his leg, um, his old nurse, or he'll see his son and, you know, they'll make the connection. And he always says, don't tell anybody. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, the reason they can't tell anybody is because there are a bunch of suitors at Odysseus's house, eating Odysseus's food, sleeping in his home, wooing his wife. And so the question as I was reading that was, that sounds like a very similar plot line or, or feature, story feature that I've seen before. Where else have I seen that? Oh yeah, the gospels. When Jesus performs miracles and then tells people, don't tell anyone, which is a really strange thing. So it got me researching, and this is a, a feature that's been known as the Messianic secret. Uh, so I first stumbled across that concept in Reza Aslan's book, uh, Zealot, which is a horribly written book. Uh, he did a lot of good research, but it, the book itself is not sound. And uh, and I, I just was thinking about how these two things are so similar to each other, and it's really interesting that Mark would include that detail when it was so prevalent in, in Odysseus. So I started just thinking about other ways in which the stories parallel each other. And I think there are a number of them and I won't go into them here. I've presented an academic paper on that that I'd be happy to share if, if anybody's interested. But um, 
But come to find out there is one scholar out there, Dennis McDonald, this is his name, shout out to him, who has a couple books about the gospel's use of Greco-Roman mythology. Um, so he thinks Luke Acts is based on the Iliad and Mark is based on the Odyssey. And he makes the argument, this is what people would have learned to read with. So if Mark was literate, even barely so, he would have been familiar with that story. And and he sets out kind of metrics for telling whether or not two stories are related. And I think he makes a very compelling case. Now, the caveat is that McDonald grew up in, in a very fundamentalist home and went to Bob Jones for his undergrad and then went to like Yale Divinity School. So point, point being, he believes the Gospels are almost entirely mythic in nature and that they're really, uh, he thinks there is a historical Jesus, but that he's not nearly what we've made him out to be. Uh, so I think he needs a, a little bit more of a C.S. Lewis imagination, you know, this idea of true mythos. But I think he makes really good arguments that that there's a literary relationship that the author of Mark is trying to draw out, that Jesus is Odysseus, uh, in at least a type of Odysseus, fulfillment. a fulfillment of Odysseus. And I think the point of that, theologically, is that in the Greco-Roman world, the idea of being a hero was so important. You know, I, I mean, if you read the Iliad, they want to die on the battlefield so that they can live as immortals. And what does Jesus do? So Odysseus reveals himself to the suitors and he unleashes fury on them. He slaughters them in his home, him and his son. Jesus reveals himself while he's being put on trial as the son of God and he's killed. It's the total opposite mm. of the heroic ethic. He flips everything onto his head. So the fact that Mark thought to do that to take this heroic ethic and build it up with all these points of connection. And then at the climactic moment, instead of raining terror on the Pharisees and killing them and slaughtering them, Jesus is slaughtered by them. He dies for them. And he dies for them, which is even, I mean, from the world's perspective, even weaker that he's yeah. dying for the people who are trying to kill him. But that's such a profound statement. It can only be subversive fulfillment, which is your term. Right. Which is where we're going with this. So you're, yeah, that was a great segue into, I think a good way to conclude this discussion. So we've got all these various parallels. My suggestion to you all, this has been my thought experiment for years. Father Wesley's behind me on this is that these parallels between paganism and Christianity are not something to fear, but something to embrace rightly. So how do, what do we do with this? How do we embrace it rightly? So you just mentioned here a moment ago, C.S. Lewis, all roads lead, right? And so C.S. Lewis in, in uh, God in the docks um, makes the bold claim that a Christianity outside of so-called pagan ideas and interactions, it actually wouldn't be a Christianity worth following. It wouldn't be quote real because it wouldn't first be quote myth. And by this, Lewis means precisely what I've been trying to present and talk about mostly. And you know, Wes has been here supporting. There is a grand underlying mythical narrative. And the word I use is mythos that pulsates through human experiences told by story, by ethics, by symbol, by ritual, what we might call the echoes of Eden to use um, Steinbeck's term found in every human heart and culture can equally be called mythos, mythos, mythos. 
To be mythical for Lewis is to be true in the deepest sense possible, not fake. Myth doesn't mean untrue. Myth means you're actually trying to describe the true reality. So to be mythical is to participate in the structures of reality established by God himself. If Christianity is to be real, then it must be mythical and it must be, I dare say, pagan. And so as, as these examples we've talked about today show, the church of the early centuries understood their faith as a participation in and even fulfillment of this grand human mythos. They approached the world with a mythical imagination, and they sought to reclaim enemy territory by baptizing culture for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Now, they didn't always do this well. There are plenty of examples from history and even today of what's called syncretism, where you take two incompatible religions and you mix them together and make a third religion. And so in her attempt to give a strong yes, Yes, to the existing structure of the world, the church has and still does at times fail to extend the equally necessary no to paganism. And what better example could be given than the current culture's accommodation in most mainline Protestant churches to the culture's sexual ethics? In our attempt to say yes to love, marriage, faithfulness, etc., we're failing to say no to the form of the union offered by the world. So how best then, I think is the question before us, how best then should we understand this mythical project, this mythos uh, undertaking of the early church? And, and I want to suggest, as Father Wesley said earlier, this label, subversive fulfillment. And I got this label from Father Aubrey Spears. He's a priest at uh, Anglican Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And so it's, it's this idea that Christianity not only completely fulfills the mythos of this world, but it deeply and utterly subversive it's what you just talked about. It's yes to the heroic ethic and then flips it on its head. And, and you, we get this with Paul. For the preaching of the cross to them that it perish is foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And so the gospel of Christ is unlike anything else in the cosmos. I hope you don't hear this episode and think we're just saying that the gospel of Jesus is one among many stories. <laughs> Far from it. Parallels and fulfillments abound within paganism. But the uniqueness of this story ultimately exposes that all other stories are nothing more than subtly crafted plagiarism. Peter Lightheart talks about this as well, that the devil cannot create anew. So the reason that we have all these stories is because he can only warp what already God has created. And so these stories are perversions. They're, they're going astray from the actual story that God is telling. But because the devil can't create, he can't make things, um, we, can, we can then find people who have gotten off the path and point them back in the right direction using the same materials that got them where they are to begin with. Right. And so I think that's the pattern that the early church sets for us. These early followers of Jesus is subversive fulfillment, seeing the pattern and bringing it back into line. So, but I, I really do want to go further still. And, and I want to say that this project of the early church is still ongoing. It's not yet complete. I mean, how can it be? Paganism is alive and well. <laughs> Just look at our modern culture. And I don't mean that in the sense of neo-paganism. I mean, secularism is a form of paganism. It worships 
the the natural and in this case it tends to be the self the body the identity of one's own choosing and so there there, there are more fulfillments to be found and more subversions to be sought so what's required of us the church i think is a keen mind i think it's a sacramental mythical catholic imagination that can discern the narratives of this age and then offer them back to the world through the gospel as both fulfilled and subverted so again stealing from father Aubrey Spears, I want to offer what he thinks, and I totally agree, are two great examples of this. And so first, perhaps the greatest narrative told in our modern world right now, modern culture, is that romantic love is the strongest force in all of reality. So our movies, our music, our books, social media, they all double back to romance and relationships. And this, the underlying message becomes that life finds its fulfillment in such love. You know, they lived happily ever after type idea. And our culture isn't wrong to think this way, as we've said. It's part of the mythos. It's part of the deep reality of the universe, of the cosmos. The issue is that in their pursuit for love, even romantic love, they stop short at a perverted notion of eros, of erotic love. Love for our society is a self-gratifying, receptive love that fails to reach maturity in Christ, I think. And so the gospel is the fulfillment of our culture's search for love. Jesus on the cross is love incarnate, which is no doubt the most powerful force in reality. Not even, I th- not even death could stop the force of love that is Jesus on the cross. Well, and I think the underside of this is the divorce rate, which continues to go up. Because if you go into a marriage thinking that your entire fulfillment will exist in this relationship and that it will be absolutely perfect, that you'll ride off into the sunset and that there won't be any problems ahead, or even just the monotony of day-to-day life, which will come to bear down on you that five years in, seven years in, 10 years in, you're waking up day after day, you're going to work, you're coming home, you feel stressed, you feel tired, you can't give. And so people get divorced because it's not the quote unquote fairy tale that they had believed at the beginning. What When what we see with the cross being the center of everything is that love is always sacrificial. So you don't have to feel it on a given day, but there are sacrificial components to a marriage. But in a culture where the self is the ultimate goal or end point, that is an incoherent idea. And I think that's where the gospel subverts the world's notion, the pagan world's notion of love. So yes, we say yes, love, even romantic love, I mean, Christ and a bride, this is the strongest force in all of reality. Not even death could hold it. Mm. Yes. But no, it's not erotic love. It's not receptive love. It's agape. It's self-giving, sacrificial love. That's the that's the no that we have to offer to the world. So when you come home after a tired day and you're upset at your wife and the kids are screaming, love is the strongest force in the world. So go pour yourself out like a drink offering and give yourself to your spouse and your family like you don't know how. So I think that's one example. The second example is our culture's narrative about identity. And so we're told that the greatest pursuit a person has in life is to discover her identity and then to live it out boldly. You know, whether that identity is centered around sexual orientation or gender, political affiliation, race, culture is unequivocal. Identity is something from within a person. Though the burdensome task of introspection and soul searching, a person crafts this unique identity. 
And this identity, uh, it then locates the person within a certain realm of social and political life. Oh, you think this way. You identify this way. You must therefore be with these people. So identity is the grounds for community, networks, friendships. And so I think what a word of fulfillment the gospel brings to this search for identity. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye were washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So you see, identity lies at the heart of the Christian faith. We are children of God through Jesus Christ forever. We can and we must affirm our neighbor's desire, our pagan neighbor's desire to answer the question, who am I? And at the same time, I think that we offer this major subversive answer, and that is identity, says the gospel, is not something discovered from within, but it's received from without. It's through baptism you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. That's what makes you who you are. That's when you put on the name of Christ. That's when you're adopted as an heir of the kingdom. So you're struggling with your sexual orientation. You're a child of Christ. You, you don't know, maybe you're biracial and you can't figure out which race you live in. You're a child of Christ. These other things are important, but ultimately your identity is rooted in something from outside, not from within. So I think that's the subversive fulfillment. That's the good news that many people in our culture need to hear. And so I'll just end by saying this. This has been a a fun project for me to think through. I think it has great implications for our culture, but you know, paganism isn't yet dead. And its stories, its myths, the mythos, it still resounds in the hearts of those that walk the so-called secular streets, streets out in the world that are not enchanted. But I think deep down, people are longing for the world to have meaning, to be enchanted. They're longing for the mythos to be fulfilled. And I think that may be one area where this is a necessary, but maybe even harder project for us to do in our context than it was for the early Christians in their context, where the paganism at that time still had that sense of enchantment, of myth. In our culture, it's... It's really a disenchantment and a cynicism, and that makes it really hard to reach. I mean, I'm thinking, our, I think our great cultural mythology right now has to be the the Marvel movies. Um, but even the way that that a character like Thor, who is a great you know pagan god, and if we took up Norse mythology, we could probably find another a number of parallels. But even the way magic is described in the Marvel movies is a disenchanted it's science. magic. It's science. It's just science that we haven't fully understood yet. Um, It's not supernatural. It's not from without. So one of the places, this is why if you go back a few episodes about our books, the books we enjoy, I I, I put in there, I think that we need to be reading, and I got some pushback from this, Harry Potter. It's not the greatest literature. I admit that. But people are... our generation, I'm 29, flocked to this book. Why? Because it allowed us to be mythical. And so 
Right here in my hometown, Roanoke, Virginia, last year, there was a Harry Potter festival where grown men and grown women showed up in downtown Roanoke in in robes with fake wands and went to different went to Gryffindor meetings and heard professors, so-called professors, lecture about magic. Our culture is starving for mythical reality. And so it makes me wonder if, like you said, it, it was easier perhaps in the pagan world because the magic, the realism was so there, so to speak. But could it be that what caused the early church to flourish in the face of pagan opposition was this mythical imagination? Is this why Rome eventually gave way to Christendom? And could it be, I wonder, returning to this same impulse will help preserve the next generations of Christians in the face of an all too secular world? Well, if you have any thoughts or ideas or questions about that, we would love to hear from you. So we'll move into the segment now to uh, finish our episode of what we're into. So for me personally, I've really been into uh, just more intentional about feasting and enjoying the enjoying food, enjoying drink, enjoying life. We're coming out of Eastertide. And so having gone through Lent fasted a lot and now just really celebrating and enjoying so one thing that Liz and I have been doing my wife is we have we bought some really nice stout porter like high gravity stuff and we take one every night our ritual has been for about a week we take one and we split it and we just sit and talk while drinking this beer and that's that's feasting for me at the end of the day is I'm not chugging this to you know get buzzed or something I'm just enjoying it for what it is is a, is a beautiful part of God's creation uh, and so just enjoying food and life and after the rigors of Lent. Wonderful. Well, I have two. The first one I have to keep short because I don't want to debate you, but the first one has to be the movie Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And, and the reason that I have to keep this short, just so everybody knows, is that Father Miles hates this movie. All right. But but you should not listen to what he says about it. It is a beautiful, it, it is the closest cultural product to recovering a sense of mythos that I can think of in, in recent history. So uh, I really enjoyed it. Shout out to Todd Smith, my boss, for recommending it. He is absolutely right in that debate. So anyways, now that we've set the record straight, I'll, I'll give you another one that I'm into so that we don't leave the podcast feeling uh, enmity between us. Wow, you did not tell me you were going to talk about that. <laughs> exactly. I felt like I couldn't. I might have gotten kicked off the show. The second thing I've been into, uh, growing up, I, I listened to a lot of Christian music, especially the uh, the record label Tooth and Nail, and one of the bands that really grabbed my attention full force uh, as a probably between the ages of fourteen to seventeen was the band As Cities Burn, uh, and so uh, they I, I think I got familiar with them after they had released their first two albums. There was a third one on the way. The day I turned sixteen, it came out. I was so excited. I was gonna buy the uh, concert ticket. It, and then the band broke up so sad for me so a week after the album dropped and I never got to see them in concert but I put it on my bucket list I'm gonna see Assidies Burn on con in concert one day and I, I saw them they had a side project that traveled around after they broke up I saw them open for a band called Emery one time and that was cool but it wasn't the experience well thanks be to God they have gotten back together and I saw them this past September in Harrisonburg Virginia it was a great show and now they're releasing a new album 
album called Scream Through the Walls. And I'm very excited about this. I'm geeking out. Uh, so they've released two singles, one called Chains and one called um, one called Hollowed Out. And so far, so good. It sounds like classic As Cities Burn, just like I was listening to in you know 2007. Um, so I'm excited to see them when they come to the East Coast, hopefully on tour. So I'm really into As Cities Burn right now. From Tree of Life to As Cities Burn, only here on The Sacramentalist. I, I think they might be more connected than we would think, but that's a whole other episode. Oh, gosh. One we'll never get to. <laughs> well, if you like what we're doing here, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and share us with your friends. And you can always email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. And we did have one announcement uh, for, this, uh, for this show because the Monday after this episode comes out, we'll start a, uh, a new segment. So we come out every other week right now with a full discussion where Father Miles and I go really in depth on something, but we still want to provide content for those kind of off weeks in between. So we've decided to free up some space for us to do things like interviews with people um, or monologues, diatribes even, uh, or reading. So, uh, so our first episode, kind of mini episode, will be an interview that I did with the author Scott Harrower, who's a theologian from Australia, who wrote a book called God of All Comfort. But after that, we're going to start a series, which will probably go for some time, that is uh, us reading the Tracks for the Times, which was the Oxford Movement's main product as far as uh, kind of contributing what is Anglo-Catholicism. Right. So I would imagine a lot of Anglicans, even Anglo-Catholics, have not read through the tracks very, very attentively. And they're, they're all free online. This is public domain. So just consider us, we're going to make audiobooks more or less. We're going to make them, we're going to read. It's going to be probably very limited commentary and that might go for a few weeks and then stop and we do another interview or we do another monologue. The difference between these mini episodes, these bonus episodes will be uh, Father Wesley and I will not be together in those episodes. But Every two weeks, your normal Monday routine, twice a month, you'll get us together taking, having our hot takes on whatever we come up with. As cities burn and tree of life. As cities burn, trees of life, and a nice porter. Well, I don't think we have any more to say, as my Greek professor in undergrad would end every single class because we finished our lesson. He would look at us and say, and Alexander cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. And I don't think there's any more worlds for us to conquer today. And so, Father Wesley, would you speak an enchantment? I mean, a blessing over us. Absolutely. <laughs> May God supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you this day and always. Amen. Amen. Amen.